So this article, I clicked it because there was a picture of Harry Truman. It was a very famous picture of President Harry Truman holding up the newspaper on the morning he won the presidential election that said, Dewey defeats Truman. And when I clicked for that article, I didn't expect to find a great list of emotions to use in copywriting. And uh, if we can be honest here, you're here for a list of copywriting emotions, at least based on the title of this episode. And you probably didn't expect a story about Truman, but today we're gonna cover my secret fascination with President Harry Truman and a lesson in emotional driven or in emotion driven copywriting. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're a copywriter marketer, if you wanna be more persuasive with your words and build your business. Uh, with that, let's dive in. These are the proven direct response marketing, copywriting, and entrepreneurship success strategies you can use today to write your own ticket and create the life you want. I am Roy Furr, and this is Breakthrough Marketing Secrets. Now, here's today's breakthrough. All right, today's episode, as usual, sponsored by yours truly, that is me. Check the link in the description to emotional direct response copywriting. It is hyper relevant to Today's episode, of course, we're talking about emotions and copywriting. Emotional direct response copywriting is something you wanna check out. The link is in the description. You can learn more about that training, about that course there. Let's talk about emotional copywriting and presidential campaign speeches. Now, it should be no surprise to you at all that emotion and marketing and persuasion are used in politics, right? Uh, but there was this great article from Denny Hatch uh, called America's Greatest Data-Driven Campaign. I'll include a link to that. I'm also going to include a, a link to a book by Denny Hatch that I consider to be one of the best books on copywriting that nobody talks about, which is Method Marketing. Now it's out of print and it's becoming more and more rare. So copies are getting pretty pricey, but honestly, it is one of the best books on copywriting and marketing that I know. Um, so anyways, uh, this, this article, about America's greatest data-driven campaign was about Truman. And specifically, it was about his election between the time that he was vice president um, and then became president when FDR passed away um, and the campaign that he actually won. So it's about that, that campaign in between then. He only ran for president once, uh, even though he was president twice. So he was basically a political nobody as vice president. He had been a senator, yes, but he was definitely not expected to be the president. This was FDR's fourth term. So everybody was like, like FDR kept getting elected because he was the, the, the driving force, right? Um, but on April 12th, 1945, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt died, making Harry Truman president. Uh, president. And uh, one of the first things Truman did was he actually reached out to Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, FDR's wife, who was now his widow. And Truman said, uh, is there anything that I can do for you? Like, at, you know, anything that I can do for you? And she responded, is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one in trouble now because he was suddenly leading America in the depths of World War II. And for some context here, how out of touch he was with the critical decision-making going on in the country, 
World War II would be ended by the use of the, the atom bomb. Um, not long after Truman became president, he was not even aware of the atom bomb on the day he moved from being vice president to president. <laughs> so uh, maybe Eleanor Roosevelt knew something for you are the one in trouble now uh, when she said that. So anyways, uh, we're talking about the campaign. We're talking about persuasion. Truman gets nominated for re-election or for election as the president. He gets nominated as a presidential candidate. But he was written off from the beginning. Um, Dewey was, was considered to be like a shoe-in for president. Truman was losing in the polls. He was definitely the underdog candidate. But he decided, he decided, hey, I want to go out and I want to meet the people. I want to go meet the people. And he actually came up with this idea himself. His campaign staff implemented, but he came up with this idea himself that he would ride on his presidential train car and he would go give speeches called his whistle stop tour. He'd go give speeches all around the country by train. This lasted from July to October 1948. It spanned over 31,000 miles in those, what, five months, four months, whatever. And he gave 352 speeches, even at like 6 a.m. in his pajamas. It was, hey, the president's coming to town to give a speech. He's gonna be uh, like at the back of his train car. And the crowds ranged from 22 people in some towns all the way up to 125,000 people in at, at a big event in Detroit. And from July to October, 1948, over the course of those 352 speeches, he actually met, he spoke to 3 million Americans in person, like there in front of them. But there was a secret weapon that he had. This was not just him walking around or, you know, riding around on a train giving the same speech. Um, there were actually copywriters that won the 1948 election. Now, maybe they didn't call themselves copywriters. They were speechwriters, presidential speechwriters and researchers. But there were these seven writers working on the campaign in Washington. And they planned the stops. Um, so Truman had the idea for the, the whistle stop tour. They planned the stops. And then they sent 12-point questionnaires to each of the local officials. Um, so they would, they would send out these 12-point questionnaires ahead of time, get a response and say, hey, the president's coming to your town to give a speech, answer these 12 questions so he knows how to, um, how to speak to your people. And this went out to all 352 stops. And those seven writers in Washington um, actually created locally tailored speeches based on those replies and flew them out to meet the train every other day of the tour. And uh, then President Truman started each speech. He started each speech acknowledging the local officials by name. He would talk about the local politics. He would talk about the individual histories of these local officials. He would talk about the town gossip, um, about the political gossip. He would talk about the town's main business, about the economy, about like the restaurants in town that everybody loved, about the problems, about the news all around the local economy and the local culture. And every speech that he gave felt intimate and personal from the top. Then he would go off and discuss his normal campaign topics, his normal campaign issues, especially focusing on the do-nothing Congress that was not allowing him to 
um, to do the work that Americans wanted him to do and that if he was reelected and if the Americans reelected uh, or, or elected the candidates that would support him, that they would be able to get more done for America. And as a result, he ended up speaking to 3 million Americans in person about what mattered to them, which is a great reminder that all politics is local. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a saying that you've probably heard before. All politics is local, even national global politics. People mostly care about what it means to them personally. And the result of that campaign, the 3 million people, the whistle stop tour, all the press that it got, there's a very famous picture of Truman holding up the Chicago Daily Tribune with the headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, across the front page, all caps. Um, but that was the morning that Truman won the election. And it kind of shows the power of connection. Um, and we'll get to that emotional hot buttons list in just a minute. Um, because, yeah, I do want to cover them and I want to make sure that I deliver on that promise from today's episode. But first, I want to talk about my secret fascination with President Truman. So just like that whistle stop tour and all the people that went out to see him, I actually have my own unique personal connection to Truman. Um, he was actually my great grandma's cousin. Uh, and so he lived with her when he was growing up. He, he actually lived uh, with her in the Kansas City area while he was um, becoming a professional, you know, uh, coming into his own as an adult. He lived with her family. Uh, my grandpa ended up donating the oldest handwritten correspondence to the Truman Library. My grandpa actually visited Truman at the White House. Uh, different story for a different day, but my grandpa donated the oldest handwritten correspondence to the Truman Library, uh, including personal leather letters to my great-grandma and her sister. And the last time I went to the Truman Library, I actually saw them. They were in the lobby. They were displayed in, in a glass case. And um, I, I actually learned this morning as I was doing a little bit of research for this episode that my great-grandma even attended that inauguration ceremony after the whistle stop tour. So when Truman got elected president and he was inaugurated, uh, my great grandma was there. She was an honored attendee. And um, it's not just the family connection that makes me appreciate Truman. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about him and I think about often is he had a sign on his desk that said, the buck stops here. Now there's a whole history of poker and all of that uh, for um, for uh, behind that saying, but there's the the idea of passing the buck, which is pa passing blame, passing responsibility. And honestly, like pff, politics, it's really, really common for people to pass responsibility. But Truman put it on his desk in the Oval Office of the White House, saying the buck stops here, which means ultimately anything and everything that goes on in my administration is my responsibility as the leader. And it was something he took to heart, and I really appreciate that. And he was focused on doing the right thing, even when it didn't help his politics. So, for example, Congress would not pass a bill desegregating the military, and he was pushing for it. Uh, there were, you know, people who fought and died, uh, and, um, and their loved ones and their friends, and... Uh, when Congress would not pass it, he passed an executive order that said, nope, military um, and a few other federal groups are desegregated. 
Um, we are not having black and white segregated inside the military. And he was definitely an imperfect person. Um, but he, in my opinion, as somebody who has at least a passing fascination with presidents, was definitely one of the best presidents in history. Um, and so I was a little surprised to see him in a marketing article. Um, but back to that copywriting uh, lesson that I promised, the seven emotional hot buttons. So if you, if you came for that emotions list, make sure you grab your pen. Uh, this was actually in the footnotes of the article. Denny Hatch, you know, put a couple notes about things to be learned. And uh, one of the things that he said was in marketing, and I'll repeat these, in marketing, the key copy drivers, the seven emotional hot buttons that make people act are fear, greed, guilt, anger, exclusivity, salvation, and flattery. So fear, we're afraid of things. We're afraid of something. And we have this, this pull to respond, this need to respond. When we are afraid of something, we respond to it in some way. Um, and usually that is getting away from it. So things that we are afraid of, we will do things to protect ourselves from it, to distance ourselves from what we are afraid of. Greed. We go after things that we want. We go after things that we desire. It is a reason that we take action. Now, those two are pretty common, pretty, pretty well known. Um, the, the, the fear and greed are often used as, hey, in investments especially. People are always either responding with fear or with greed, right? Um, but fear and greed are, are big ones. There's also guilt. How do we comfort ourselves in the face of this feeling of guilt? How do we assuage our guilt? How do we um, make ourselves feel better in the context of that? And we do all sorts of things as human beings. We do all sorts of things to make ourselves feel less guilty, including buying a lot of stuff. So what kind of guilt is driving purchase behavior? Anger. People definitely take action based on anger. People take action um, to spite their enemies. People take action because they are angry at their circumstances. People take action for all sorts of reasons rooted in anger. Exclusivity, to be a part of something, to be a part of, uh, of an exclusive club, to be a part of something special. Um, people take action to have this feeling of exclusivity. It's, it's a feeling of, hey, I'm better than you. That's, that's definitely part of it. Because I am part of something exclusive. People buy all sorts of crap. People spend a lot of money to feel like they're part of something exclusive. Salvation. People want salvation. They want somebody else to come in and be their savior. Um, that very much plays into politics, um, you know, without going too deep down that rabbit hole. But people, people want to be saved. They want to be saved by the thing. They want to be saved by the opportunity. They want to be saved by, you know, somebody who is there to solve their problems, somebody who's there to separate them from their painful past and introduce them to a brighter future. People buy for salvation reasons. And then this one definitely was at play in the Whistle Stop campaign. Flattery. People buy for flattery reasons. People buy because they are made to feel good when they buy. So that, that flattery is something where people are making buying decisions based on that. And um, if you can make someone feel flattered, if you can make someone feel good about themselves, they are going to be naturally drawn to you, or maybe they'll vote for you. Um, so the important part about this is not just to like mire someone in these emotions. It is to actually offer 
and emotional journey from negative to positive, from tension to release, whatever those emotions are, the point is that you're, there is a journey that they are going to take. And um, it's important here, if you want to use this, try to make it personal as much as possible. Like use the whistle stop tour as an example, make it something where it is, um, it's personal to them. So if you've been through the same thing, you can tell your story. If you have a story of someone like your prospect who has been through something like that, you can tell the prospect story, but show the emotion, show these seven emotions and make it personal. And the power of selling with emotion is in that personal connection, which is what the Whistle Stop Tour accomplished. Uh, and it's, uh, it's just a good reminder of what's possible. Now, if you want more resources from today's episode, don't forget I have links to Emotional Direct Response Copywriting, Method Marketing, the book by Denny Hatch, and the article, America's Greatest Data-Driven Campaign, if you'd like to read more about that. I'm Roy for this Breakthrough Marketing Secrets. Don't forget to like and subscribe every day in every episode. I'm here trying to help you become better at copywriting, marketing, business building, and more. And I will catch you soon in your next episode. See you soon. Bye. Thank you once again for tuning in to this daily episode of Breakthrough Marketing Secrets. Remember, check out the links with this episode for even more value. Now make sure you like, comment, share, subscribe, and engage in every way you can to keep this show going and growing and delivering daily value to you. I'll catch you soon for your next big breakthrough.